Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators, where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down and finding time for friends and colleagues while you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the FICA. It's our sixth or seventh episode. I'm not sure. I'm losing track, but it's so great to see you all. We are so excited today that we have a special guest with us, Dana Hammer, who actually lives in Seattle, but is faculty at the University of Colorado for many years now. It kind of goes back and forth, does delightful things there, but we're so delighted to have Dana here. We'll explain why we have Dana here in a few moments, so. School has finished for all of us, I think. We're still, we're just starting exams today. (laughs) Oh, wow. You all are much later than us. We already had graduation two weeks ago. (laughs) End of the month for us. Oh, wow. Well, we're heading into the summer, nonetheless. So that's actually what I wanted to ask about. Any fun summer plans? I'm, I'm heading to Italy. We're teaching a global health elective. So my wife and I in June. So we're really looking forward to that. Any fun things for you all, though? I'm going to Italy, too. We'll have to hook up. I'm going to Italy, too. <laughs> No, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. My, mine is work-related, but um, a, a real chance to gather again with the My Dispense International crew, and I haven't seen everybody in a couple of years, so it, I'm really looking forward to it. Mine is not business-related. Uh, my older daughter, who is finishing her junior year at Oregon State University, is going to do a study abroad in Florence. And she said, can you guys move me in? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think so. We can do that. If you insist. Well, my plans are not as exciting as that, but my my daughter is, my oldest daughter is graduating from college from St. Olaf. And so that's an exciting event. And then we're going to just hang out this summer because it looks like she's probably moving abroad in September. So we'll just enjoy some time together. That sounds lovely. So my daughter's graduating from high school. And so we're taking probably the longest, I guess it's, I guess it is actually the longest vacation I will have had since I started working. We're spending, I think, two weeks in Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, the end of June. So looking forward to that. Some diving, some running, some... Yeah. Some stuff. I don't know yet. Some st- <laughs> um, let's talk about snack choices today. I uh, have a cappuccino mix, not not a very elegant one. This is, um, let's see, Maxwell House, the one that you stir into the cup. Uh, it's 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 not very well. Anyway, it was available. That's all I can say, and that's why I'm drinking it. You've just had all our Melbourne listeners dial out immediately. They have lost all respect for the podcast with instant coffee. That's that's correct. And it's the cappuccino kind, too, so it's even worse. (laughs) And and a banana. Wow. Well, I have my water, but this time I actually do have a snack. I have 
I don't know, it looks like about eight almonds. Not a lot, but actually it looks like there's nine. So enough to get me through the show. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you glutton, you glutton. Yeah, Jeff, don't overdo it. <laughs> I think Obama ate eight almonds a day. I think I remember reading that. Well, I have pimento cheese, a little bitty bit because I could really go to town on pimento cheese. I, it's got a little bit of jalapeno in there and some wheat thins and a LaCroix limoncello getting ready for my Italy trip. It's a nice lemony flavor, but a bit creamy. So I've gone uh, posh water today. <laughs> yeah, my pimento cheese is such a southern thing to have, too. No, Or so I like to, if I said it in my natural dialect, pimento cheese. <laughs> and for me today, I have some champagne white tea. It has mallow uh, blossoms in and cornflowers. So I'm, I'm celebrating the end of the term with some champagne white tea. And then I have some toasted coconut. I really thought you were going to stop at champagne. And I was like, KJ, you have dialed it up a notch for us. <laughs> I have my giant thermos. This is one of my favorite cups because it's big and it keeps things either really warm or really cold. And I got it at this fun resort, which is um, just in the mountains, the Cascade Mountains of Washington State outside of Seattle. It's called Suncadia. Um, with my best friend when we were out there hiking. But anyway, inside here, I have some Mandarin Orange Spice Celestial Seasonings Tea with a little lemon wedge to keep it a little tart. And then um, for my snack, since it's pretty early here on the West Coast, I was actually working on my breakfast. And one of my favorite breakfasts is some eggs and vegetables with a little bit of cheese in there. And so I've got that like on a piece of toast and I got halfway through it um, and then covered it up when my cat Frank decided to join. I'll finish that a little bit later. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're delighted to have Dana here with us because we're going to be talking about civility and academic citizenship, which I think is an important topic and affects all of us. So I'm going to let Jeff kind of kick this off and start some background and some questions. All right. So this topic um, was chosen through a Twitter poll. So we appreciate everyone who responds to that. We do pay attention to what people want want to hear us talk about. And Dana was invited for you know being a lead author on a very good paper on academic citizenship. And this was what, like a couple of years ago, Dana, something like that. So let's actually start with you. And maybe the question to get us started is, you know, just in your mind, then how would you define academic citizenship? I mean, you read about it in different ways, and I think people think of it differently, but just, you know, basically, how do you define it? Yeah. So in the paper that was published in 2019 in AJPE, but just to kind of give you a little bit of a context, so it was really the product of work of a team of people who had been studying the concept for a few years. It was part of a Council of Faculties task force. Um, when Steve Scott was chair of the Council of Faculties, this was one of his passions, and he and I had done some work together before. And so he asked me and Brian Crabtree actually to, to put together this task force and really explore the concept to lend some definitions to the concept and make some recommendations around how we think the academy should embrace this concept and what to do with it. So of the literature we explored at the time, 
And we started our work actually in 2014 was when the task force started. And we had several iterations of reports that we would give at AACP meetings. And then we finally were able to put together a paper that a commentary that was published in AJPE. But as you've alluded to, there are different definitions for academic citizenship, faculty citizenship, depending on the keywords that you used. And what we felt our academy needed was sort of a two-part definition. One was what you read around that really, relates to service activities, whether it's explicit service activities or implicit or things that we do that really nobody knows about, um, because maybe it's not tracked or documented on your CV or your annual reports, but all of the things that lend itself to the health of your department and your university and things that faculty do. So that was part of our definition. The other part was collegiality. Your your demeanor, your how you work with other people in the work that you do, because we know that that is a big contributor or detractor for success and for productive outcomes. And so our definition really has those two parts, um, one being that service and engagement component is what we call that, and the other being this collegiality component, so how you're interacting with others in your work. So did when you were doing this, did you like find anything really surprising? Was there something, you know, in your research and reading like, okay, this is surprising or I didn't expect this? Yes, actually we did. Um, so as we were doing our literature search and digging around through various buckets of information, the American Association of University Professors, AAUP, which has been around for a long, long time, actually had a policy statement saying that they did not feel that collegiality should be measured and used as part of the faculty evaluation process. And the reason they took that stance is because they didn't want academics to be punished really for what might be considered a personality quirk or just maybe not fitting in with the norm of other faculty. But what they do go on to say in their statement is that, you know, they didn't think that collegiality should be measured and rewarded or punished as its own entity, but it should be interwoven in the evaluation process so that that collegiality component could be part of your research evaluation, your teaching, and your service and whatnot. So that was a really surprising finding, I think, for us. Uh, I think our task force was leaning toward if this is something we value and something just like grades with students, right? If it's something we value and something we want to promote, then we probably need to be measuring that and rewarding that somehow. We were leaning against the punishment part. We don't feel that that's really a way to incentivize our colleagues, but the reward part could really be powerful. I think measuring it is so challenging, right? So I think service is a little bit easier to, to document in some way because you can say, I served on these committees, this was the output of that work and so on. So I think there are ways of doing service that, and we should do a better job of it, by the way, but I think there are ways of doing that component of academic citizenship. What's more challenging is, you know, is someone civil? Is someone a good colleague? Are they collegial? Are they pleasant to be around? And how do you measure that? Because that is so subjective. You know, there are some of my colleagues, I love being around. I like working with them. They're always on time. They do great work and I enjoy their company. And, but I know others don't. I mean, because that's just kind of a, 
sense that others have about individuals. And I'm sure people feel the same way about me. Some people love working with me and some people probably don't, you know, so. <laughs> Dana's paper, as well as uh, Shane DeSell's paper about organizational culture of saying, okay, so what is the equivalent of this in pharmacy academia? So, you know, do good work, do good research, do good teaching, um, you know, be on time and be easy to get along with. And what's that balance? Is it the same? Could you do, if you do fantastic work, you got five nature papers, you were nominated for a Nobel Prize, but you're pretty late and uh, nobody likes you very much. Are you still okay? Versus if you're fantastic collaborator, you add value to every team, but your publication record um, perhaps is fewer you know, how do you balance that out? And I know I'm linking back to um, performance evaluation, but I think it's it, it lines up nicely, I think, with what Dana is saying is, do you measure this and whose, whose barometer do you use? I'm wondering if you have sticky colleagues. I'm sure we all do that have make it challenging for the organization or the unit to be its best. And sometimes stickiness is good because challenging things actually get you to rethink things. But sometimes stickiness actually just kind of poisons the atmosphere, makes it difficult. And sometimes those people, and I would put myself in that box, they don't have an awareness of when they're challenging that's helpful and when they're challenging and it's kind of poisoning things. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, what you're saying, Stuart, is reminding me of a couple of related concepts. There's um, you know, emotional intelligence, and you, you mentioned, are they aware? Um, and, and are they kind of self-regulating if they are aware? Um, so how much, of, how much of this that we react to maybe negatively is, is something that could be built in terms of uh, evolving those emotional intelligence skills? Um, but I'm also thinking about some work that has come out from, I think it's the giant organization, and they have a book called The Five Voices. And um, the five voices basically talk about like, how do I come to the table? What is it, what is it that when I speak, people hear and, and feel and react to and, and, and understanding what those five voices are? And sometimes I think we perceive certain people as, you know, throwing anchors or um, being problematic. But really, if we, if we look to what that source is and maybe allow ourselves to start to see that as a strength, you know, maybe those people are, for instance, guardians and they are, they are just trying to preserve what's good. And we may perceive that as, you know, getting in the way. But there's maybe something positive in what they're doing. We just not kind of need to look at it the right way and make sure it's not like overdone. So I, I, I am always interested in kind of the strength side of the negative that we, we perceive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have uh, observed this um, probably firsthand and from afar. I'll say more from afar than firsthand. And, you know, when Kristen was talking a little bit of thinking about um, how people perceive themselves on the flip side of then how do everyone else perceive them and react to that. And that harkened me back a little bit to first assuming good intent of people. 
um, you know, I don't think most of our faculty trying to be negative for negative sakes or to slow work down or to make things worse. I, I don't believe it. I think everyone is here to, to try to make things better in whatever way they, they see that is. And so I think that's a conscious part. That's a conscious thing I have to do on my part. When those types of things happen, it's like not immediately assume ill intent, but assume good intent. And it might take some time to figure out what that good intent is or how to get there. Um, but I think that's an important part that we don't think about enough. I, I agree, Jeff. And I, I call that the innocent until proven guilty theory is thinking that there really is good intentions behind it. I know a lesson that I learned early on um, when I had a colleague that just really seemed like an obstructionist. In any committee that I served with this person, it was just very, very hard, it felt like, to make progress. Um, and another colleague, a mentor of mine, said, you know, Dana, that you need to think about it a little bit differently and that those are the people that make us better. They're the ones that I may need to explain my point of view more clearly. I may need to demonstrate more evidence. I might, I might need to shore up my, my story, basically. I need to accept this maybe as some feedback and then respond in a way that can make all of us better and, and help get the outcomes that we're looking for. And so that really helped me kind of, it turned a switch in my mind instead of being like, arr, arr, you know, we need to get this person off the committee. It's like, okay, so I need to bring my, I really need to bring my A game to this work that I'm doing and help this person maybe to see at least my point of view, but do it in a different way or think of multiple ways to do that. So that was really helpful for me. Or, or perhaps take a slightly different approach than you initially thought because the, what they're bringing to the table is valuable and, and maybe you haven't quite gotten the right angle or the right policies or whatever you're working on together that just needs to be reframed a bit because they bring some important points to the table. Which We've talked a little bit about like personality and how we're perceived and those sorts of things, but the other part of your definition was the service part. And and I think that's another area where we have some people who really do a tremendous amount of service for our schools, our university, our departments. They're always stepping forward. They're, and when they do, they always do a great job. They put themselves in it. And then we all know we have colleagues that don't don't volunteer very often. Um, when they do, they do it begrudgingly and and often don't put much effort into the service that they give. Sometimes they do it, they volunteer because they know they need to in order to get promoted, but that that's the only reason they're doing it is that external reward. Or strategic underperformance in a role where you're like, I'll do this because I need, you know, I'm being, but I'm, I'm going to do such a not good job. They'll never ask me to do this again. <laughs> yeah. That's my strategy at home for chores. Oh, <laughs> yes. I probably shouldn't say that publicly, but it is. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's another, that's not in, it's not incivility. It's not personality. It's, it's, it's not part of the, that part of the equation, but it's just not being engaged at a level of service that contributes to the common good like many other people do. And again, that can poison, you know, then other people see, well, they get away with it. Why am I putting the effort forward? Why am I chairing this committee? Why am I making this huge effort when they're getting rewarded and I'm just not, and I'm not being recognized for it. So it can also poison the organization and not have anyone want to willing to step forward to do good work. 
and that remind kind of leads me into actually the the it's a good segue Stuart because I was actually wanting to pivot to this this part about service work and pulling your own or not pulling your own. And there was one of the articles looked at beforehand. It was by Cola Nicola Beetson out of New Zealand. And then there were some um, Australian authors on there too. That was for you, Tina. And it's the, the article was the gradual retreat from academic citizenship. And the, I guess the essence of it is the reward systems aren't always set up to reward service. Therefore, everyone uh, in their own best interest are concentrating on the other pieces that they need. And then there was another, I think it was more of a blog article, and it was sort of the same thing of retreating from service as, a, as, a, as an act of survival of being able just to stay in the system. Yeah, I, th- I thought those were really well chosen articles, Jeff. And I think they certainly the messages that were coming through resonated with me, at least what, what I feel like I've seen and observed over the last few years and sort of the changes in dynamics and maybe the economics of the university enterprise that might be leading or might be one of the, that's what I think the authors state, right? That the economics of then the academic capitalism are really some of the drivers for people not doing as much in service because they're just trying to hang on to get more grants, more publications and top tier journals. We're being encouraged, if not pushed, you know, to do more with our teaching and technology and innovation. And when I think about how pharmacy academia sort of interplays into this, we've got pressures of declining enrollments, um, which means then declining budgets and job security or not. And then I was thinking about overlaying that with the pandemic and I think in, in multiple sectors, when I talk to colleagues and other lines of work, and even in volunteering, like in my church, for example, there, there seems to be people engaging less. And so I think we've sort of got this perfect storm right now of maybe a decline in, in the service component, at least especially those things that we're not required to do. But then certainly there are a gazillion opportunities. Do you want to attend the Road Kai Initiation Banquet? We'd really like to see you there. The students love to have that, right? And those are the things that nobody's probably going to check a box if I'm there or not. Does it really count? I don't know. It's goodwill. And I don't think most people put that sort of thing on their annual view either is that they attended, even though it is part of your citizenship to your institution and to your students. Mm -hmm. I mean, the example I give about pulling back from voluntary service because I'm on an editorial board and and editor is the number of people willing to do peer reviews. And a lot of chatter now that, you know, I'm only going to do peer reviews if you pay me. And that used to be voluntary service, but now there's kind of this, like, really, I'm a volunteer, you know, why should I do this? There's nothing in it for me. But it's, again, it's sort of like citizenship is about contributing to the common good. And if you want to be a scholar in in contributing to journals, you also have to be willing to, to peer review on the other end. It's, it's a moral obligation in my mind. If you want to publish there, uh, you also got to peer review there. But, you know, I think that's a really good point. It's how we define our success. Is it our individual success or is it our collective success? And, you know, you hear it in a, in a teaching set, you know, it might hear like my course versus our curriculum, right? Well, in my course. Um, and then in, on the citizenship side, I will tell you, I mean, the most humbling experience I'd ever had was when I first moved to Australia. I'm from a different culture. I'm new. I know some people, but not super well. And in one of the first semesters I was there, we had somebody on maternity leave, which again, maternity leave in Australia is much 
better than in the U.S. So that was a year somebody was going to be on. We had someone's mother die, a mother-in-law die. It was just kind of a perfect storm. And I'm going into this meeting, going to have to ask people to take on more work. And I'm nervous because they don't know me that well. I don't know the organizational culture. And even before I could ask, people were putting their hands up going, oh my gosh, I heard Betty's mom passed away. I can cover those lectures. Oh, I could do this for Andrea. And I'm, I, I was like, first of all, am I on earth still? <laughs> you know, I'd never experienced that degree of they defined the success as collective. They really respected their colleagues and they were like, I have the ability to make this better. And it wasn't anything I created. I stepped into it. But once I was in that culture, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, yes, people took on extra work. Um, And that was recognized. And it was just like, I think they didn't know any other way. And I thought, okay, I'm never going to tell you that other places it might not have happened exactly that way. Let's stay in this bubble. Um, because it really is, if, if we can redefine, if if our promotion and tenure guidelines pit us against one another, then that is going to make it impossible for us to create that collective good. If we can define it differently, then we we naturally will step up and help each other to improve our overall culture. I, I do want to make a distinction, though. I don't think it all comes down to promotion and tenure guidelines. I really don't. No. I think it is a cultural issue. It's a it's a culture of the institution, and there are ways of creating the culture intentionally. Cultures are often created unintentionally. They just kind of evolve the way they are, and that becomes the culture. That becomes the norm. But I think there's there are ways to intentionally cultivate a culture that you want. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious if any of you have been through a culture exercise at your institutions. Many businesses do this now. This uh, book, Culture by Design, that I've been reading because AACP went through this with their staff, and I thought it would be great for me to read it. I'm about 80% the way through, but really being very purposeful in creating the culture that you want. And feed the wolf, you know, feed the culture you want, right? You know, not just monetarily, but, you know, really signpost it, be purposeful about it, you know, share that um, in a way that makes people see, yeah, this is not just valuable, it's valued. We actually at Colorado um, in 2017 through 2019 undertook sort of a culture experiment, I should say, and it wasn't really elaborate, but the dean had asked if I would chair a committee that would really look at what is the culture of our school and how do we help move the needle so that everyone's feeling like they're um, achieving their potential and working toward excellence and all those different things. So I would like to think that through that process, it helped at least start some conversations and maybe a culture of just paying attention to the culture. I can't say that in my experience, we've made huge strides towards all these grandeur things that we wanted to have happen over the next few years, but at least it got on the radar for the folks that are our primary decision makers. And we now have a little bit more language, like in our strategic plan, both at the school level and the department levels around the culture that at least we paid attention to it and just had some conversations. 
Yeah, in the in in the book Culture by Design, they try to make a distinction between values and the culture because values are things that you believe in. Mm-hmm. The culture is the way you behave. And so it's the what are the behaviors? Because you have certain values, what are the behaviors? And so a lot of people say, Oh, we value respect. You know, that might be one, or scholarship. Well, because of that, because you value respect, what is the behavior that is that that comes from that? Define that. Um, and there's lots of things that you could say, like because we uh, respect one another, these are the things that we do. We keep commitments, and when we can't, we are upfront about when we can't. Um, which is a pet peeve of mine. You know, I work with colleagues who just don't. They make a commitment and then they don't follow through, and and then I feel like the, personally. That's something I very much value. But we've never articulated it as a group. Like, is this something that we really value here? And if so, what's the behavior that should follow from that? And and we all should live with that. But we don't talk about mm-hmm. those things. And so we don't talk about the behaviors that should come forth from that. And that's why the cultures kind of set up the way they do. And people behave in certain ways. And then eventually that becomes the norm. I think that can impact retention as well. If people don't like the, the environment in which they're in, they will probably seek other employment opportunities. And that can be, that could mean losing some really good people, or maybe it means losing some people that you're not that sad to lose, you know, depending on the culture. So, any last words of wisdom from before we can conclude? As I'm listening to you all talking, again, history and, and context. And I, I feel like, you know, the pendulum is always swinging one way or the other. And I think we're, we're, we're feeling and we're reacting to the pendulum swinging to this side of individualism, you know, and being rewarded based on, yes, my research productivity and how good of a teacher I am and me, me, me. Um, and, and we're reacting negatively to that because the pendulum has swung so far to that side that our whole conversation, it seems to me, has been about how do we talk more? How do we build community? Can we think about the collective? Can we think about the common good? Like, how do we tug this pendulum back um, so we're not so far into the individualism kind of side of things that that we're just uh, seeing these negative behaviors or reacting to each other in this tension and negativity uh, and, and not really kind of focused on that common good? Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Pharmacy Fika. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir.